Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. We are nearing the end, the completion of the book of Acts. And in this recording, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 27, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 44. And this chapter really is an exciting, well-told, almost adventure story of Paul's sea voyage to Rome. And remember, Luke is with him. He's been with him this whole time. It's probably actually used some of these two years while Paul has been waiting in prison to do some of his research for his gospel, as well as maybe some research for the book of Acts. And he's going to be with him on this sea voyage. And so this this telling of this sea voyage and the shipwreck that comes with it is full of all sorts of details and drama and excitement because Luke was right there. So this is a fun, exciting chapter in the story of the book of Acts. And it's important to remember where we're at in the story as well. Paul had returned to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey with the intent of bringing an offering to support the local believers who were impoverished and who were struggling. And that led eventually to him being in the temple and being mobbed in the temple and almost killed, being uh, then taken charge of by the Romans there in Jerusalem, eventually a death plot on his life, being transferred to Caesarea, a trial before Felix, waiting for two years, then a trial before Festus and a hearing before Agrippa. All of that has taken place and brought us up to this moment where because Paul had appealed to Caesar, to Caesar he's going to go. And so now it is time. There's been enough hearings. The paperwork has been pulled together. It's time to send Paul on to Rome for his hearing. And so here in Acts chapter 27, we get the account of Paul's sea voyage to Rome. And the scene opens by listing off the various people who are with Paul on this journey. And it says this, verse 1 of chapter 27. Now, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, notice we, so that means Luke is with us, they proceeded to turn Paul and some other prisoners over to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And so Luke, Paul, and this centurion named Julius and some other prisoners are all on this, uh, going to take this journey together. Julius, the centurion, is going to be in charge of Paul and the other prisoners. We will learn later in the story that there are some other soldiers with him. So you've got some soldiers under Julius's uh, uh, centurionship, and their job is to guard and guide the prisoners and Paul safely through to Rome. Verse 2 continues by saying, And we boarded an Adramidian ship that was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia and put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. So we get someone else who's on board the ship. This friend of Paul, Aristarchus, who was one of his traveling companions at the end of the third journey to represent the Macedonian churches, particularly Thessalonica, with the offering. So he's been apparently in Judea for the whole two years as well. And we will see that he's mentioned in Paul's letters that Paul will write from Rome and from his Roman imprisonment. And Paul will describe him in those letters as his fellow prisoner. To see that, take a look at Colossians 4.10 and Philemon 24. Now, my suspicion is, particularly on the way it's described here, that he's not a prisoner in the sense of being an actual prisoner, that when Paul describes him that way, Paul is basically saying, he's participated with me for two years in Caesarea, and now he's with me in Rome, that he has voluntarily bound himself to Paul, and thus, he, in a very real sense, is like Paul's fellow prisoner. 
So you have this crew of people with Paul, and they board an Adramidian ship. Adramidia was a city on the northwestern coast of Asia Minor, up near Troas. We've seen Troas mentioned in earlier chapters of Acts. It's up near that region is where Adramidia is. And so this ship, apparently that's its home port, is that city up there. And it's um, described here as a coastal vessel. That is, it's not a deep sea vessel. It's one that's about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia. It's going to hit little ports of call all along the southern coast and western coast of Asia. And so it's heading in the right direction. They pick up on board with that and they begin to sail. They put out from Caesarea and the next day, verse 3 says, we put in at Sidon. So Sidon is up north on the coast of Palestine. And the uh, first port of call for this ship is apparently Sidon. And so they put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. This is an interesting little detail that Luke throws in for us. And again, remember, Luke is an eyewitness. He's with us on this. But it's an interesting detail. And we need to pay attention to these kinds of details throughout this story because I think it helps us see really one of the big themes of this story. And that is how Julius interacts with Paul throughout this story. So here, he begins the story by letting us know that Julius is already treating Paul with a certain level of uh, respect and honor certainly because of his Roman imprisonment. Maybe Julius has had interaction with Paul during his two years in Caesarea. We don't know, but there is at least a level of respect and consideration given to Paul here, and he's allowed to go meet with some of the Christians there in Sidon. And so he visits with them. He receives care, which probably means some provision, anything he might need for the journey. They're going to provide it for him, and, and Paul receives all that. From there, verse 4, we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And so they're heading west. The winds are coming from the west at this point and are against them. And so they sail to the north of Cyprus and it provides a little bit of protection against those winds and allows them up along the coast. And so they continue on from there. Verse 5, when we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, these are some regions right along the southern coast of what is modern-day Turkey, we landed, Luke tells us, at Myra in Lycia. And so they've made it about two-thirds along the southern coast of modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor in their day and age to a city named Myra. And Myra was an important uh, harbor town port for the Imperial Grain Fleet. That's important because it explains what happens here at Myra. Look at verse 6. There in Myra, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. And so here is a ship whose home port of call is Alexandria, but that ship is sailing from Alexandria all the way to Italy. And that's because it's an Alexandrian grain ship. Alexandria, Egypt, provided a huge amount of the wheat for the city of Rome. So here is an Alexandrian grain ship, which means it's a large seagoing vessel. And so they decide to change ships here and continue the journey on this Alexandrian grain ship. Just a little bit of historical data so we can kind of picture what we're looking at a little bit. These Alexandrian ships or grain ships like this often were 
140, 150, 160 feet long. We've found some that are even upwards of 180 feet long. We don't know exactly how big this one is, but we know it's one of these larger ships. Typically, they had two masts, a center mast and then a foremast. The center mast with a large square sail and two tri triangular top sails. And then that second mast at the front held a triangular foresail used more for steering. That'll play out in this story as well. Um, they also had two large oars, giant oars, that were attached to the side of the ship and could be used for steering and maneuvering uh, if they needed to use them as well. That seems like it'll factor into the story as well. And as we noted, this is primarily a grain ship. So its primary main cargo in the body of the ship would be wheat. Um, and all of that will factor into this story as the story unfolds. Also, we need to remember that Paul... Paul's trial was sometime in the summer, late summer of 59. So by the time we're taking this sea voyage, it's already fall. That's important, and that'll play out as well. So let's continue then with the story. They board the ship. They set sail from Myra, and verse 7 says, When we had sailed slowly for a good many days. We don't know how many days, but a long time, right? They sailed, notice that, slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off Sindus. Since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Now, Let's just get our bearings a little bit. We're sailing along the southern coast of modern-day Turkey. Sindus is right on the corner of the southwestern edge, the southwestern corner of what is modern-day Turkey, Asia, in their day and age. So they arrive to this little point off Sindus, uh, and the wind is still against them. They're really struggling to make any sort of progress. And so they sailed under the shelter of Crete, which would mean from here they headed south and they tried to see if they couldn't get south of Crete and see if that could give them some protection from the wind. And uh, so they come around that that eastern tip of the island of Crete and they're sailing now to the southern side of it. Verse 8, and with difficulty, having sailed past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. And this was a small harbor and a small town, kind of midway along the southern coast of the island of Crete. So they managed to make it here, and uh, they put in there, and then they try to decide what to do from there. They're really struggling, making any progress. The winds are against them, um, and they're harbored here. But it's a small harbor and a small town. They're a large ship, and we're going to learn later on there's a lot of people on the ship. That poses some real problems. So they got to figure out what they're going to do. Are they going to just harbor here for the winter or what? Well, verse 9 kind of continues the story and says this. It says, when considerable time had passed. So however long it took them to get there, they harbor there for a little bit. They're hoping the weather will get better. Um, and a considerable amount of time had passed. And the voyage was now dangerous since even the fast was already over. Paul started to admonish them. And Paul's going to give some advice. All right. But let's just make sure we understand where we're at. The fast. What's the fast? Well, that refers to the Day of Atonement. And in the year 59, that's the year we're at on this journey, in the year 59, that took place on October 5th. And so it's after October 5th, and thus 
as Luke notes here, the, the journey is now dangerous. Why is that? Well, because sailing on the Mediterranean really got risky as you got later into the fall and into the winter season. In fact, one Roman uh, writer of the time said that sailing on the Mediterranean was considered dangerous between September 14th and November 11th. And then between November 11th and March 10th, pretty much all sailing was stopped on the Mediterranean and the Mediterranean was closed for sailing because of how bad the weather was and how dangerous it was and there was no you know, navigation and all that. Well, we're already in that dangerous time. We're sometime after October 5th, so we're approaching the middle of October and it is getting to be a dangerous time to sail on the Mediterranean. So Paul speaks up and he says this to them. He says, men, I perceive certainly that the voyage will be with great damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, this is most likely Paul not speaking prophetically per se. He says, I perceive this. This is Paul speaking with the voice of experience. He's an experienced traveler. He's an experienced sailor. He's been on lots of ships. He understands sailing. He understands when it's safe to sail, when it's not. In fact, we already know from 2 Corinthians 11.25 that he's already been in three shipwrecks. So he's had his fair share of difficulty on the sea. And this seems to be his admonishment based on the voice of experience. But, verse 11, the centurion, Julius, who listened to Paul, was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. So these two sailors who have ultimate responsibility over the ship seem like they should be the ones that the centurion Julius listens to, and he's more persuaded by what they have to say than by what Paul has to say. And they don't feel like the ship or this harbor is a good place for the ship to winter. Um, verse 12, the harbor was not suitable for wintering. So the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So they know they're getting late in the sailing season. They know they can't make it all the way to Italy um, with as late as it is in the sailing season. So they're like, maybe we should just try to go down the coast a little further to a better harbor for the winter. For whatever reason, they decided that the harbor there at Fairhavens was not sufficient for them for the winter. Maybe it's, it was its position or just as likely was the fact that there just wasn't sufficient amenities for the 276 people on the ship. We learn that number later on. And since it's such a small harbor in a small town, um, it's probably not the best place for them to winter. And so they decide, let's see if we can get further down Crete to where there's a better harbor, the harbor at Phoenix, and it seems to have a little bit better protection from the winter weather. That's the goal. So verse 13, here's what happens. When a moderate south wind came up, thinking they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close to shore. So a wind comes up that they think, ah, this is perfect. That should just be just enough wind that'll get us 
uh, down to the island to where we need to get to for the winter. So they weigh anchor, they begin sailing, they're sailing close to shore to keep them right protected you know, from the winds um, by the terrain of the island. But, verse 14, before very long, a violent wind called Uroquillo rushed down from the land, and when the ship was caught in it and could not head into the wind, we gave up and let ourselves be driven by the wind. And so as they're making a way along the island, all of a sudden the wind shifts and change. And now there is this violent wind coming out of the northeast. This Uroquillo is coming out of the northeast. And so it's a dramatic change in the wind from what they expected. Um, we've actually found uh, navigational stars and wind stars from the first century that actually use this very term, Uroquillo, which seems to have been almost... A, a violent hurricane force type wind that would just spur out of nowhere. So it comes rushing down from the highlands on the island of Crete and just blasts the ship with this wind and the ship is caught in it. Uh, they weren't able to turn the ship into the wind, hoping to try to protect the ship that way and see if they couldn't just ride it out and then get where they wanted to go. Uh, the wind was too strong, too powerful. The storm was too big. They finally just gave up and let themselves be driven along. Well, as they're driven along, there's a small little island uh, to the southwest of Crete called, in their day and age, Cauda. And, and so, verse 16, running under the shelter of a small island called Cauda, we were able to get the ship's boat under control only with difficulty. So you have the lifeboat, which was typically drawn along behind the boat, and they need to get it hauled in and secured. So they get a little bit of uh, at least a small break in the wind from this little tiny island, and, and, and they managed to at least pull this boat aboard and get it secured. And so they've hoisted it up, verse 17. Then they use supporting cables to undergird the ship. There are various ideas on exactly what that entailed. Some see cables being run from stern to bow and hold the ship together that way. Some see uh, loops being dropped underneath the hull of the ship and around the whole thing and being pulled together left to right. And so in some way or another, they use various cables in order to try to help hold the ship together because it was being battered so much by this storm. And because the wind is coming out of the northeast, it's pushing them now southwest. That leads to a great fear of theirs. Look at the middle of verse 17. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and let themselves be driven along in this way. A couple things to clarify there. The shallows of Sirtis, uh, first century sailors, ancient sailors, had almost an obsessive fear of this. It's referenced multiple times in sailing logs and all of that. Um, it was an area kind of along the northern coast of Africa that was well known for its mud flats that extended way out into the Mediterranean. And so sailors possessed an almost obsessive fear of this because they're being pushed in that direction. They're afraid they could end up there, get completely bogged down, be way out from any mainland and have their ship just be destroyed. And that would be the end of them. So they're afraid of that. And so it says they let down the sea anchor and let themselves be driven along. The question is, what does sea anchor mean? The language there is uh, clearly some nautical terminology, and scholars are a little bit uh, uncertain as to exactly what it's referring to. Most 
see it not as a sea anchor, but as letting down the rigging. In other words, they let down the main sail, they let down the upper sails on that center mast, and they probably leave only the foresail up on the front of the ship and, and perhaps even turn, try to turn the ship so that they're maybe facing as best as they can into that wind and try to have at least some control with their foresail with which they can steer. That's uh, what, probably what happened here, uh, although it's not 100% clear. And so um, they're just trying to make preparations and try to keep them from going too far south. The next day, verse 18, they were being violently storm-tossed. They began to jettison the cargo. This is the first of their attempts to lighten the ship, and this is probably the deck cargo. So they jettison the cargo and throw it overboard. And then on the third day, after they, since they got caught in this storm, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. In other words, any extra rigging they didn't need. All of this to lighten the ship because they're afraid they're going to end up in these shallows, and they're just trying to lighten the ship so it doesn't drop down nearly as deep into the water. So they're throwing the ship's tackle, extra gear, extra rigging overboard. And verse 20, since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was slowly abandoned. And so for days and days and days, they didn't have any sun or stars. What does that mean? No navigation. They had no way to know exactly where they were at uh, they had no idea to know which direction they were exactly heading. They were lost at sea. They're being violently storm-tossed by a, what Luke says, no small storm. In other words, a big storm. They eventually began to give up any hope of them being rescued and being able to get out of this desperate situation they're in. So it's been a number of days at that point. Uh, Paul stands up verse 21, and he begins to give encouragement and advice to everyone on board this ship. Look at verse 21. When many had lost their appetites, and so they're, they haven't eaten, uh, they're sure they're going to die, uh, they're giving up hope, they've lost their appetites, Paul then stood up among them and said, Men, you should have followed my advice and not set sail from Crete and thereby spared yourselves this damage and loss. Now, it'd be easy to take what Paul says here as, I told you so. Uh, I don't think it's exactly that per se. I think it's more Paul saying, look, you, you could have listened to me because it's obvious I know what I'm talking about. Um, this is him just, I think, asserting his experience and his credibility that I kind of warned you and I know what I'm talking about. And yet, verse 22, this is what he says. He says, now I urge you to keep up your courage for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong, whom I also serve, came to me saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has graciously granted you all those who are sailing with you. So Paul has received a, a visit from an angel from God who's reassured him that he's going to make it to Rome, that he has to stand trial before Caesar, and God in his mercy has actually allowed everyone on board the ship to be brought safely through along with him. And so in view of this reassurance from this angelic vision, Paul gives encouragement to everyone on the ship. So maintain your courage. You're not going to die. We're going to make it. And Paul gives this really encouraging motivational speech. Therefore, he says, 
verse 25, therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it'll turn out exactly as I have been told. I'm trusting God. He sent his angel. I believe him. I have confidence in him that he'll make sure it happens. But, verse 26, we must run aground on a certain island. So Paul's got some inside intel based on what the angels told him. We're going to live, but we're going to run aground on a certain island. He doesn't know which island. He just has seen or been told by this angel that they're going to run aground on an island. Well, that's his motivational speech. Encourages people to maintain their courage and not get, lose hope. Verse 27 now says, but when the 14th night came. So Luke has been counting. Even though he can't see the sun or the stars, he does know the difference between day and night. And he's been counting nights. And it's the 14th night since they set sail from Crete. So they've been out to sea, lost at sea, in the storm for two weeks. Um, so when the 14th night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, in our day and age, the Adriatic Sea just refers to the gulf between uh, Greece and Italy. In their day and age, that was the Adriatic Gulf, and the Adriatic Sea was the name they gave sort of to the Central Mediterranean. So they know they're somewhere in the Central Mediterranean, just based on where this whole thing started, right? So we're being driven about in the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors began to suspect that they were approaching some land. And so in the middle of the night, somehow the sailors began to discern they're approaching some land. Probably... Uh, they hear some surf, right? They hear waves breaking on land. We will learn at the beginning of Acts 28 that the island on which they're going to shipwreck is the island of Malta. And the traditional location of that shipwreck is nicknamed St. Paul's Bay. Well, if that's the right location where he actually did shipwreck in this case, there is a point that juts out into the Mediterranean just before they would have uh, arrived at that bay. And um, that may be where they all of a sudden began to perceive that they were approaching some land because the surf breaking on that point of uh, land that juts out far from the island there. And so in some sort of way, they have discerned that they're approaching land and they took soundings. They dropped uh, ropes with weights on the end that were hollowed out so that they could pull, you know, they would know when they hit the bottom of the sea to make sure they got all of that. They'd pull it up and they would have measurements on it and they could see exactly how deep the water was. So they took soundings and they found it to be 20 fathoms, uh, roughly 120 feet. A fathom is about six feet. And so they found it to be about 120 feet deep. And then they waited a little bit, took another sounding. And on that one, um, they found it to be 15 fathoms, 90 feet. And so it is getting shallower and shallower. And they realize, okay, we heard some surf. It is getting shallower. We don't want to just, um, in the dark, in the middle of the night, run aground on some rocks where we can't see where we're at. So, verse 29, fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and prayed for daybreak. So they realized, okay, we are heading into some land. We can't see it. It's dark. We don't know what we're in for. They want to slow their progress as much as possible. So they take all four anchors and instead of dropping them from the bow, they drop them from the stern and trying to get the ship to just to stay put until morning. And they're hoping for morning. Now, verse 30 tells us some other things that happened in the middle of the night um, after they, they kind of get things situated. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship, 
uh, Han had let the ship's boat down into the sea. So some sailors, however many, we don't know, but there's a handful of the sailors who are like, we're making a break for it. We don't know where we're at. Uh, we've been out here for uh, 14 days. We know we're close to land. They're going to make a break for it. And they let down the ship's boat that they had hauled in two weeks earlier when they first got caught in this storm. They let it down uh, on the pretense that they were going to lay out anchors from the bow. So they're letting the ship's boat down uh, now from the front of the ship. Um, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers with him, this is how we know there are other soldiers who are helping guard the prisoners, unless these men remain on the ship, you yourselves can't be saved. Now, don't know what that's based on. Again, if that's Paul's voice of experience saying, we're going to need these sailors to help with the prospect of whatever we're going to face in the morning or what, right? We don't know exactly where this is coming from, Paul, but this is what he says. Unless those sailors remain on the ship, it's not going to go well for you guys. You guys aren't even going to be saved. So the soldiers took out their uh, swords and they cut the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. And I imagine Paul's like, that's not quite what I had in mind. We could have used that boat to get to shore tomorrow, <laughs> right? But they let it fall away. So now they're without a lifeboat. Um, verse 23, until the day was about to dawn. Notice this, this is important. Paul kept on encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken in nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your survival, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. And so Paul, Paul is encouraging them all, we got to eat. We need some nourishment, some strength for whatever we're going to face in the morning, right? So he's trying to get them all to eat some food. Having said this, verse 35, he took some bread and he blessed it. He gave thanks to God in the presence of everybody. So he says a prayer of blessing to the one true God in front of all these pagans on this ship, right? And he thanks God for this food. He broke it and he began to eat. And verse 36 tells us all of them were encouraged and they themselves also took food. And so everybody on the ship is now eating. They're encouraged by Paul's words. Verse 37, we were 276 people on the ship in all. And so there's a lot of people on the ship, 276. There's Paul, there's Luke, there's Aristarchus, there's a centurion and some soldiers, there's the crew there's the other prisoners, and then however many other people are for whatever reason, there's a lot of people on the ship, 276 of them. Perhaps the reason we get the number here is they actually had to take account so they could ration out the bread and make sure they had enough food for everybody. We're not totally sure, but at this point we learned 276 people on the ship. And when everybody had eaten enough, verse 38, they began lightening the ship by throwing the wheat into the sea. And so now they, they've gotten rid of uh, the deck cargo, they've gotten rid of the rigging and the extra gear on the ship. Now it's time to let's get the wheat out of the hull of the ship so that the ship sits higher up in the water because they don't know what they're in for and they're probably going to have to try to run the ship aground wherever they're at. And so they lighten the ship by um, offloading the cargo of wheat into the sea. Verse 39, now when day came, they, they could not recognize the land. It wasn't a place that they had been to before. It didn't look familiar. But they did notice a bay with a beach. And they resolved to run the ship onto it if they could. Let's run the ship straightway uh, into this small little bay. And casting off the anchor, so they let them go into the sea. Uh, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders, they hoisted the foresail to the wind and were heading for the beach. 
So once they got some daylight, they came up with their plan. They got various people in various positions and all at the same time, they did these things. They, they cut off the anchors, let them fall into the sea. They loosened the, ro the rudders. Those were the big oars at the back of the ship that they were gonna use to try to steer. And they hoisted the foresail to the wind, all with the goal of beaching this boat, running it as far as they could up onto the beach. But, verse 41, it didn't work. Verse 41, they, were, they struck a reef where two seas met and ran the ship aground. And so as they're trying to run into this bay, uh, there is a reef, a some sort of point or something that sticks out into the water. And it's got, right, sea on both sides. So some sort of point sticks out and they, the, the ship got jammed into that point. The prow stuck fast firmly and remained immovable and the stern started to break up due to the force of the wave. So they, they, instead of getting all into the beach, they get stuck on some point of land out into the water. And all of a sudden the waves are battering the back of the ship and breaking it up um, and nothing can be done. So the soldiers, their plan is to kill the prisoners. These prisoners are going to escape at this point. There's nothing we can do. They want to kill the prisoners. Uh, so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from accomplishing their intention and commanded that those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest were to follow up using whatever they could from the ship, some planks and others on various things from the ship, and trying to get themselves to shore. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. What a crazy, wild adventure story that is, isn't it? But they all made it. They all made it. And we're going to learn in the next chapter that they're on the island of Malta. They're going to spend the winter there. So we'll get that story in the next chapter. But man, this is just a crazy story here and quite the adventure. But they made it. And what strikes me is this, is by the time we get to the end of this journey, who's in charge? Who's giving orders? Who's in charge of the ship? Paul is, right? Like, Paul had given his advice uh, on Crete. They didn't take it. Uh, before long, he's giving a motivational speech in the middle. I had a vision from God. I believe God. It's just going to happen just as he said. So stay encouraged, right? Be strong. And then he gives this, this uh, we need to take some food. He gives a prayer of blessing. They all eat. They're all encouraged. The sailors are trying to escape. Paul tells the centurion. The centurion stops that from happening. And that when the Soldiers want to kill the prisoners. The centurion doesn't let that happen. Why? Because he respects Paul and he wants to get Paul safely through. It is phenomenal to me that in the midst of this crazy storm with, with these sailors and soldiers on board, by the end of it, the one person who has his wits about him and who's keeping everything heading in the right direction is Paul. And he has that because God appeared to him through an angel and reassured him that indeed, I told you, you're going to make it to Rome. You are going to make it to Rome and no one on the ship is going to die. And Paul says, I believe God. And it reminds us that when we have direct promises from God, we don't have to be afraid. Paul had a direct reassurance for the specific circumstances for his life. And we often don't get that to the same degree, but we do have specific promises from God in his word that apply to our life. And this story shows us how when you believe those promises, you can have great courage, even in difficult situations, that faith brings courage.